to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippen, your host, and I am very thrilled today to have in Religion 210, Religion and Ecology, at Agnes Scott College, the Reverend Noel D'Amico from the Alliance for Fair Food. She is a UCC minister and has worked many years with the Presbyterian Church USA on the Coalition of Immokalee Workers Campaign for Fair Food. She is an activist and a, an amazing scholar of Bible and theology and social ethics and human rights. So she's going to talk to us about the role of religion in movement building, in ecological and economic justice uh, in the U.S. and also globally, um, and about those commitments uh, that religious studies and those who are religious practitioners bring to the work of human rights and social justice. So I want to read uh, very briefly a statement that she made just last month at a uh, worker-driven movement building session in New York. At a time when authoritarianism is on the rise around the world and the very sinews of our democracy are under attack, at a moment when hatred and fear threaten to divide us, one from another, and in an economy where some are considered disposable means to others' profitable ends, we gather to hear how, against all odds and in light of the long history of slavery and exploitation in the agricultural industry, farm workers conceived of a way not only to establish and protect their rights, but to transform the food supply chain to work for all. Welcome, Reverend Noel D'Amico. Thank you so much, Professor Pippin, and thank you, class, for having me with you today. I'm particularly excited because this class is examining the concept of sustainability. And when you think of sustainability, what are some of the things that come to mind right to the top of your head when you think sustainability? Shout them out to me. Long-lasting. Something that's long-lasting. Excellent. Something that isn't taking too much from the resources that it uses? It's not depleting the resources it uses. Great. The three R's, like reduce, reuse, recycle? Reuse, recycle, exactly, mm -hmm. the recycling piece. What else do you think of with sustainability? Preservation. Preservation. Accessibility. 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 Very important. Anything else? Economic justice. Economic justice. And what was the last? I thought I heard something after economic justice. No? OK. <laughs> Well, it's so interesting because about, oh, 15 years ago, in sustainability forums that were being held across the nation, oftentimes when people talked about sustainable food in particular, they talked about local food production as opposed to industrial, and they talked about organic food production in other words, being kind to the environment. And then they talked about 
the role of small farmers in particular, both in the US and abroad. But what was often missing from that equation were workers, farm workers themselves. And so today we're going to examine that piece of the sustainability puzzle in the food system. And we're going to take a look at how farm workers who have faced dramatically awful and long-standing conditions of exploitation in US agriculture organized themselves and reached out to consumers to change the food system that was making them poor and providing fertile ground for exploitation and had it now work for all people in that supply chain. Because after all, we can't really say something sustainable if it's an organic tomato, but it's been picked by someone in slavery, in modern slavery. And so the Coalition of Immokalee Workers' efforts for fair food and their very successful fair food program have helped the idea of sustainability shift from something that is just about consumers or just about health, just about small farmers or just about the land to bring farm workers themselves into that equation and insist on dignity and human rights for workers as a part of what our idea of sustainability is. I'm particularly grateful uh, that one of you mentioned that sustainability is about something that occurs over the long haul. Oftentimes when we talk about organizing, we talk about organizing to win, but we don't necessarily talk about organizing to win changes that are sustainable. And if you don't start thinking about how you're going to sustain the changes you're working to organize and achieve, then let me tell you, it won't happen. It can't be an afterthought. It needs to be built in from the very beginning of organizing efforts. And in the Coalition of Immokalee Workers story, we're gonna look at how some of the largest food retailers on the planet retailers like McDonald's and Walmart moved from opponents to being partners in the solution. So I know you've had a chance to look at some of the videos and to read some brief articles on the Fair Food Program, and I'm just gonna encapsulate a little bit about that program and then go back and forth with you to see where you might have some questions about what's been achieved, and then we'll back up talk a little bit about early organizing and think about how the workers organize themselves and how people of faith came into that. I'll tell a little bit of my story in the midst of that and then we'll move forward to talk about the worker-driven social responsibility model and the current boycott of Wendy's and how you can be involved as well. So uh, let me start by just encapsulating the Fair Food Program. The Fair Food Program, which was designed by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, was launched in the Florida tomato industry in 2011. And it started off in Florida in fresh-picked tomatoes, that means hand-picked by workers, not by machines, Florida tomato industry, and then expanded to seven states along the eastern seaboard and to two additional crops strawberries, and bell peppers. So today, 
because of the Fair Food Program, around 35,000 men and women who are harvesting tomatoes, bell peppers, and strawberries on program farms in those seven states are laboring free from forced labor or modern slavery, from sexual assault, from wage theft, and have the ability to report any complaints that they have about their work conditions without fear of retaliation, or worse, and with knowing that those complaints are going to be investigated immediately. The result of this has been an absolute sea change in agriculture. It is not only providing basic rights that for really hundreds of years have eluded workers in the agriculture, basic rights like to work in conditions where you can get a drink of water or have shade. Imagine harvesting in 90 degree weather under the hot sun for 10 to 12 hours a day. And you'll understand why that's so important. Workers have not seen rights like this. And the kind of transformation that has been made has been described as a sea change. Harvard Business Review called it among the most, social, among the most important social impact stories of the last century. Now, some of you will have read about the worker-driven social responsibility model that makes these gains and rights possible for workers. And there are four components to that model. One are legally binding agreements between major brands and workers in which those major brands use their purchasing power to ensure, to guarantee workers' rights in their suppliers' fields or now in other industries, such as the garment industry as well. The second piece is that workers have to be at the forefront of designing the solution, designing the program that will protect their rights, as well as monitoring that program. The third piece is that there has to be deep dive monitoring by an independent monitor. And the fourth is that there have to be real consequences when suppliers, be they growers or be they garment factories, fail to comply. And it's these four principles that have combined together to create such a dramatic transformation in the agricultural industry and now in Bangladesh's garment industry. You may have read that the Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Safety is part of the worker-driven social responsibility network because it's employing those mechanisms to ensure that 2.7 million workers um, have safe working conditions, which is no small thing. And this is being translated into other industries as well. So now I'm going to just pause and say, when you were reading the literature or viewing the videos about the fair food program or about the worker-driven social responsibility model or about the current Wendy's boycott or about CIW's organizing, was there anything that really jumped to the forefront of your attention, that caught your eye, that caused you to have a question, or that surprised you in some way? I just want to open it up a little bit.
and don't be shy. <laughs> I guess like initially what like shocks me the most is the risk that the farmers are taking in this. Um, and like, I guess how you combat that um, when it comes to like people's livelihoods, uh, you know, mon monetarily, but also, you know, dealing with abuse and, and that kind of stuff too. Oh, that's, that's really a very helpful insight. And I think you mean how the farm workers dealt with that abuse, right? Because in this instance, um, as the coalition of Immokalee workers has been organizing, they've been organizing in a context of industrial agriculture, where the growers own hundreds and thousands of acres. So it's not necessarily small farmers, but large-scale industrial growers. And just to give you a sense of the systemic change, in Florida, Florida tomato fresh industry produces over 90% of the US winter domestic crop of tomatoes. So just think about that. That means the tomatoes that we purchase that come from the US between the months of October to May, over 90% of them come from Florida and then here's the other important figure to know. Over 90% of Florida tomato producers are part now of the fair food program. So unlike fair trade, which is, say you have fair trade coffee, you have all this coffee out there and then a small bit of it is fair trade. This is a change where all the tomatoes, almost all of the tomatoes coming from Florida, are now produced under conditions of respect. Um, but as you were just pointing out, it wasn't always that way, and there was indeed a lot of risk. In fact, when the farm workers first began organizing in Immokalee in the early 1990s, they were organizing amidst conditions of severe violence, of forced labor, of regular sexual assault and harassment, poverty wages, they were day laborers, which means they would go to a parking lot in downtown Immokalee and seek work every day between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning. They would board buses, if selected, that would take them to fields 20 to 200 miles away, where they would have to wait to begin work until a crew leader said go, which meant sometimes they waited two hours for the dew to dry on the tomato plants before they could begin. And once out there, they would work without reprieve until it was time for them to come back. And they did all of this in knowing that if they stepped forward to complain, nobody else was going to have their back necessarily. People would put their head down because nobody wanted to get in trouble. Of course, these workers are trying to put food on their own tables and on their tables of their families that are here. Others of them who are separated from their families, who might have come from Mexico, Guatemala, and Haiti, are the three biggest sending countries uh, for the workforce in Immokalee. Many of those men and women are supporting families back home. And so they didn't want to risk the job. Now, for example, if you were a woman and you're in the field and you're harvesting and a crew leader 
is sexually harassing you and it's getting pretty scary because we all know that there's a continuum between harassment and assault and you have to make a decision, right? You have to make a decision, do I defend my dignity knowing that I, by raising a complaint, I may well lose my job and lose the ability to feed my family? Or do I stay silent and keep my head down and hope for the best and keep working? What would you do in those conditions? Any of you, would you speak up or would you keep silent? I would keep silent. Yeah. I think most of us would keep silent because we want to keep that food coming to our children, keep that, that sustenance coming. But the good news is because of the program, that decision between feeding their families and women's dignity, that, that doesn't have to be an impossible choice anymore. So how did workers start getting the courage to do something like this? Well, they began gathering in a room, a borrowed room in a Catholic church in Immokalee, and a number of workers had brought expertise from social movements in their own country, whether that was um, the movement, um, the Loveless movement in Haiti. There were a number of animators who were trained in popular education that were part of the Mouvement Paysan de Papay, which is the small farmer movement in Haiti. It's an extraordinary movement. They brought those skills. There were people involved in defending their community's rights in Guatemala and in Chiapas. And they brought that information forward and began to think about how together they could change conditions in the field. And it really began by zeroing in on two things. One was the wages, which had remained stagnant for more than 30 years at about 40 cents for every 32 pound bucket of tomatoes they picked and hauled. And the other was putting an end to the violence in the field. And the workers took a number of strategies in this. One of them was they decided after a number of years of organizing that they would call a general work stoppage once one of the growers announced that they were going to lower the, bu the bucket rate. And that would mean they would get even less money for picking. And when they went on strike, there were about several thousand workers that stayed on strike, refused to get on buses, just left the crops in the field, and it went on for about a week. Why do you think workers might have eventually decided to get back on buses? Money? Yeah, that's absolutely right. There was no strike fund, right? So when they were out of work, they literally risked their housing, risked their food, risked their income, their ability to survive. Mm -hmm. So they could only sustain it for so long. But that was a real signal to the industry that workers weren't just going to sit back anymore. A few years later, a young worker who was 15 years old was beaten within an inch of his life, completely bloodied by a crew leader when he asked if he could stop working to get a drink of water. That galvanized the community again, and that worker came to the coalition of Immokalee workers in his bloody shirt. 
And the workers said, we're going to hold a march to that crew leader. And they started off with about 25 to 30 workers that had gathered with the injured worker at their offices on 2nd Avenue in Immokalee. And they began to march toward the house of the crew leader, who was a notorious crew leader. This wasn't obviously the first time he had done something like this. By the time they got to the crew leader's house, they were several hundred strong. And they shouted, an injury to one is an injury to all. And everybody that was there and everybody that heard about it refused to go to work for that crew leader ever again. And that was when something changed inside Immokalee because workers who for decades had been pitted against each other by crew leaders who had kept their heads down to avoid reprisals suddenly recognized that they could put a stop to this violence. And so they tried a number of other kinds of actions to bring about change. Now in the midst of that, one of the big challenges was, as you may know, farm workers, unlike other workers, are not covered by certain federal legislations that ensure rights. So for example, they're not covered by the National Labor um, Act, which talks about uh, workers' rights to organize and their right to file a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board and have that adjudicated. Farm workers didn't have that ability. Farm workers are covered only by a portion of the Fair Labor Standards Act. They're covered supposedly that they ought to earn minimum wage, whether they're paid by the hour or by the piece. <clears throat> I will just say that really wasn't the case. They might have in theory been covered, but that was never enforced in any kind of meaningful way. But they've always been excluded from overtime provision. So when they're working 10 hours in the field, they're not getting any overtime from that. So workers historically had not had protections that workers in other industries had. So there were real risks. But one of the things that's very important about the farm workers' decision to organize themselves is that, that it wasn't someone like Noel D'Amico running down to Immokalee telling workers what they ought to do. It was the workers themselves who determined the level of risk they were prepared to take on. And they did that every step of the way. They charted any campaign, they decided when to start, when to end. And so it was utterly accountable to them and they did it together. And that made all the difference. Now, because Agnes Scott is a Presbyterian school, I do want to put a little shout out here to the Presbyterian Church USA. Because in 1993, as the CIW was first organizing itself, the Self-Development of People Office gave it a Self-Development of People grant that helped the coalition get started. So just a little piece of, of Presbyterian history. What are other things that, that struck those of you in the classroom? One was the risk that farm workers undertook. What were other things that struck you in any of the readings or videos? I was a, a little bit surprised to hear that um, sugarcane never became an industry that was involved in this because of a lot of things that I've heard about the sugarcane industry in Florida. Um, it's also 
got a long history of abuse towards um, the sugarcane workers. Um, and I was wondering if there was any change in that or if they have their own thing that they're doing or... That's a, that's a really important question and it's a great question. Conditions are bad in the sugarcane industry and remain so. They have been for hundreds of years. It, like tomatoes and other crops, has been the site of different forms of slavery across the centuries, initially harvested by chattel slaves, later harvested by prison labor, later harvested by workers that are in debt bondage. Slavery has changed forms over the years, even as it was outlawed with the 13th Amendment. So right now, conditions in the sugarcane industry remain bad. However, why then did this start where it did? In Immokalee, Immokalee happens to be a town that is the epicenter of fresh tomato production. So the workers that are in Immokalee are picking predominantly in the tomato fields and some of them are also picking in the citrus groves, in orange and in grapefruit. So the way this campaign grew up, it grew out of workers' own experience in the fields. And for those of you who may know a little bit about agriculture, and given Agnes Scott is in Georgia, maybe some of you have seen some fields in Georgia as well, um, you know that different crops require a different form of harvesting. And when you're picking by the piece, what that piece is changes. So for example, the piece rate by which workers are paid for harvesting fresh tomato is a 32 pound bucket. But the piece rate in uh, grapefruit is a 25 pound sack. And the piece rate, you know, so it changes according to crops. So what, the reason I'm spending a little bit of time on that is because first, the reason it's in tomatoes is it grew from where the workers were working themselves. But second is to really underscore that as this fair food program and its model of worker-driven social responsibility are translated both into other crops but also into other industries, it has to be the workers in those particular crops and industries that drive it forward because there are very particular ways that extraction by the growers happen in a sugarcane industry, and it's not gonna look like tomatoes. There's gonna be some broad similarities. But the reason that the fair food program works is that it's super specific. So to just give you one little example of that, the 32 pound bucket that I've mentioned, for years and years, workers were required by crew leaders to overfill the bucket so that it looked like an ice cream cone. Okay, so there's a big mound on top. If they produced a flat bucket and tried to give that to the crew leader in the field who would be dumping into the, the big truck that was collecting tomatoes, they'd be told to go back and overfill it. What that did was essentially rob workers of 10% of their income. In other words, they'd be picking 10% more than they were being paid for. So one of the provisions in the fair food program, which again, was designed by the farm workers themselves, is that there shall be no overfilling of buckets. Now, 
if Noel D'Amico, who works in the field of social responsibility and has been involved in lots of worker justice stuff and is a minister who really cares and works and teaches at NYU about responsible investing and purchasing and organizing, you know, if Noel was writing the Fair Food Standards Code, I wouldn't have known to put no overfilling of buckets in that because I'm not out there for mistakes. So your question goes not only to how this program developed, but to the very important question of expertise. In this instance, in these instances, what we're saying it is the farm workers themselves who are the frontline experts. They know how the program operates in the fields. They know the ways that employers extract income, and they know how to change those. And so they're rightfully the ones who have to be in the lead of design. Now, right now, the Fair Food Program itself has inspired another implementation in the agricultural industry in Vermont's dairy industry. That industry is structured slightly differently, but right now, what I can tell you is that a group called Migrant Justice, which organized workers on hundreds of dairy farms in Vermont, made a legally binding agreement with Ben and Jerry's that ensures workers enjoy the same kinds of protections in the dairy industry that workers enjoy in the fair food program. Their program is called the Milk with Dignity program. So when we go back to the sugarcane workers, haven't forgotten about those. As this program begins to get translated into other industries, we'll of course be reaching out and connecting up with workers who are the experts in that area for the same kind of very intentional, very close to the ground replication of the rights in a way that is sure to produce concrete advancements. Well, uh, on the Vermont issue, I remember something about Ben and Jerry's needing some extra educating to come <laughs> around on that. Could you talk a little about how they did that kind of education, the workers? Absolutely. Well, workers themselves, first of all, approached Ben and & Jerry's, and those workers said, look, we know you're a corporation with a heart for social responsibility, and we'd like to present to you a program that would be very effective and meaningful. And Ben and Jerry's first response, basically they took the provisions of the fair food program and translated it into the dairy industry, into an equivalent program called the Milk with Dignity program, and put it before the company as a proven alternative. Now remember, by this time, the fair food program had been in operation for a number of years, and the results were quite clear. It worked, and it worked like had never been seen before in history. Ben & Jerry's first response was um, pretty typical of many corporations. It was a, hey, you don't tell us how to do social responsibility. We're the corporate social responsibility experts. We have a caring dairy program. And that caring dairy program has this, that, and other provisions. Well, the caring dairy program uh, might have sounded really nice, but Again, if we go back to those four principles in worker-driven social responsibility, which are at the heart of the success, caring dairy had not been designed by workers. Caring dairy was certainly not monitored by workers. Caring dairy was aspirational 
It didn't have any legally binding agreements that meant suppliers, dairy suppliers, had to uphold rights for dairy workers. It certainly didn't have in-depth auditing and monitoring, and it didn't have any consequences. So Caring Dairy might have been a nice-sounding idea, and Ben and & Jerry's and many other corporations can even intend well. But this is not the kind of social responsibility that will get us very far. For generations, the model of corporate social responsibility has failed to protect workers from the garment industry to the cocoa industry to the agricultural industry to industries around the world at the base of supply chains. Instead of aspirational codes of conduct, we need legally binding agreements. Instead of corporations dreaming up vague standards that they hope their suppliers will adhere to, we need worker-defined standards and those legally binding agreements that ensure in order to supply a company that suppliers adhere to the provisions of those standards. So for example, if one of the dairy suppliers of Ben and Jerry's fails to uphold the worker's right, Ben and Jerry's will suspend them from the program. They will not be able to supply Ben and Jerry's. That economic hammer is a very strong incentive for the dairy industry to come on board. And that's just what happened. And that's what changed the conditions in tomatoes as well. When growers realized that they could no longer sell to McDonald's, to Taco Bell, to uh, Burger King, to Subway, to Aramark, to Sodexo, to Compass Group, to Walmart, when they could no longer sell because their fields had egregious problems in them, guess what? They turned around quickly to become part of the solution. So Ben and Jerry's needed some education, and when the workers' conversation with them stalled, the workers turned to consumers, consumers like you and I. And they reached out to faith, they reached out to students, they reached out to consumers who have for years supported the coalition of Immokalee Workers' Fair Food Movement, to national faith leaders, national human rights leaders, to academics, and together we signed letters, we did marches together with the workers, we clicked calls in, we did op-ed articles, we released reports that helped educate Ben and Cherries and also show them that their customer base was going to settle for nothing less than a real agreement between workers and the company. And then in 2017, that took place, and over 2018, it's been implemented, and it has been already enormously successful on the ground. But that's really taking that model of what happens. I just would take a step back for a second. If you're looking at the food system, you have workers at the bottom, you have growers or suppliers in the middle, and then you have the corporations at the top, and those corporations put enormous downward pressure on the growers in the form of asking for large amounts of produce at below market cost. And to make those contracts, 
the growers can't really turn to Monsanto or to John Deere and say, oh, we won't pay you so much for seeds, we won't pay you so much for tractors. The only place that they have any wiggle room at all is to hold steady the cost of labor. And that's why the wages were stagnant for so long. The genius of the coalition of Immokalee workers, the farm workers who started this whole-scale transformation, was to think, how can we change that power, that purchasing power, from pressing down our, uh, our rights and our wages and turn it into an engine that drops our human rights and drives fair wages? And that's what they were able to do through the Campaign for Fair Food. So for example, if we go back to a monthly, we think after a number of years, a 234 mile march of workers to the Florida Fruit and Vegetable Association in the 90s, a 30 day hunger strike in 1996, 97, six workers that was stopped by then uh, former president, uh, Jimmy Carter, none of those things were able to bring the growers to the table for dialogue with the workers. In fact, back then, one of the growers was heard commenting to another grower when they were watching one of the work stoppages. Uh, the one grower said to the other, why don't you just sit down with the workers? And the grower's response was, the tractor doesn't tell the farmer how to run the farm. Mm. Think about that. Because at the core of all of this, I've been talking about mechanisms like legally binding agreements. I've been talking about approaches, workers at the head, designing systems, leading campaigns. But at the heart of this, is a, it's a, about our common human dignity. It's about seeing one another in the fullness of our humanity. And so when the coalition of Immokalee workers realized it wasn't getting anywhere with its work stoppages, they went back to the drawing board. And those of you who are organizers, let me just say this is a really, really important thing to do. If you're trying to change something and you keep coming up against it and it's not moving, you have to have the courage to go back to the drawing board and re-examine your assumptions. And that's what the CIW did. And the workers began to ask, who purchases the tomatoes we harvest? And very quickly they knew, both from industry journals and also from seeing supplier trucks go from some of these brands right into Motley to pick up the tomatoes they were harvesting, they knew it was McDonald's, it was Burger King, it was Taco Bell. And then they began to say, well, what we need to do is write to these companies. So they started with Taco Bell because they had some evidence about Taco Bell's purchasing uh, of truck grower in Immokalee. They wrote several letters and they made several calls. Taco Bell telling them about the conditions of exploitation in the field, and Taco Bell just ignored them. So workers decided they would do something else, and that is reach out to consumers. Now, during those hunger strikes and during the, the 234 mile march, Local students and clergy had walked with farm workers, had prayed with farm workers, had joined up with farm workers. And so at the point that the coalition decided to call for a national consumer boycott of Taco Bell in 2001, they had already established some relationships with faith allies and student allies, and they turned to them and said, you know, you have prayed with us, you've helped us meet emergency needs, 
You felt terrible about these conditions for years. But you know what? We don't need your pity. We need partnership. We need you to use your power as consumers to call upon these corporations to sit at the table and work with us and get an agreement that will ensure our rights. And to their credit, students and people of faith heard that and said, okay, I'm ready to help. This is where I come in. In 2001, I was working for the United Church of Christ in Washington. I was uh, directing their Justice and Peace Action Network on Capitol Hill uh, for the United Church of Christ. And so I was working with congregations across the country who care deeply about economic and social justice. It was a mostly legislatively focused network, however. And so when the United Church of Christ became the first religious denomination to sign on to the Taco Bell Quickup, they had to figure out how to implement this with congregations. And so it fell to me because I already had established congregations that I was working with on the ground. And it was a wonderful moment. And together, the coalition went out on different truth tours across the country, churches, fed and housed workers and joined them in protests in the streets all the way along. We did numbers of different kinds of direct actions where we were trying to call out to the conscience of corporate leaders. Actions like um, a 12-day hunger strike that went on in 2003 outside the doorstep of Taco Bell executive offices in Irvine, California. Actions like 200-mile marches and just to grab the attention and let the company know that their consumers, their very own customers, were demanding something new, a new and true kind of corporate accountability. And it's because of that shared action that the corporations finally came to the table, first with Taco Bell in 2005 through its parent company, Young Brands, to make the first legally binding agreement the first fair food agreement with a coalition of homophily workers that started the rest of the story. And so in that, you can imagine that students um, had their ideas about how best to promote this boycott. And one of the genius aspects of the coalition of homophily workers organizing is, while they were rightly the leaders of the movement, they recognized that if they were going to really capture the hearts and the minds and power of other sectors, that they had to let those leaders who really knew those sectors manage what could be brought in terms of power and accomplishment from those sectors. So they didn't pretend to be experts on how to bring a resolution to the Presbyterian Church and how to have that overturned to the General Assembly to get passage there. Rather, they worked with their faith allies, local pastors and presbyteries on the ground, worked together with them to craft an overture. They knew that religious people knew how their institutions worked best, knew how to speak language, and they created these real partnerships where people of faith brought their wisdom and their knowledge and their power into this movement. The same goes with students. Students have always been at the forefront of this movement because guess what? For the fast food and food service markets, you're their target market. They care more about what you think than what about what I think. And so students were really inventive back in the day when the Taco Bell boycott was going on. 
they decided what they'd do is start campaigns to cut their university contracts with Taco Bell until such time that Taco Bell made a fair food agreement with the coalition of immokalee workers. And at the time that Young Friends and Taco Bell sat down with the CIW to ink that agreement in 2005, something like 25 or 30 campuses had already terminated their contracts with Taco Bell. And that took a lot of on-campus organizing. So those of you who are doing organizing around custodial rights or organizing around uh, food worker rights, just know that that kind of work is really, really important. And you know how your institutions work. And as students, you have a lot of power in that. And you can see from the student bank, this movement, the kind of power that that was. By the time that that agreement was inked, there were campaigns on hundreds of universities to cut contracts with Taco Bell. Just to fast forward quickly, right now we're in a Wendy's boycott because Wendy's is one of the only companies in fast food that hasn't joined the fair food program. McDonald's is on, Burger King is on, Subway is on, even Little Chipotle is on, but not Wendy's, not Wendy's. Why? Well, Wendy's has given a lot of different reasons for that. But we know that they have said, gee, we can do social responsibility our own way, the corporate responsibility way. So they've made up a code on their own that's aspirational, that doesn't have legally binding enforcement, that uses old style corporate auditing, that it's totally ineffective. Wendy's in 2016 actually pulled their tomato purchasing from growers who were already participating in the program and sent it to the produce industry, where conditions are notoriously bad and well documented, child labor, sexual assault, etc. So last year we had a massive um, fast for fair food where over 80 farm workers and allies fasted outside the chairman of Wendy's board's headquarters on Park Avenue in New York City for five days in the freezing cold in May and sleet and snow and with their families. And that kind of pressure brought so much impact to Wendy's own decision making. There was a lot, you know what Wendy's responded, we were calling them out on their failure to end sexual assault um, and harassment in their supply chain when the fair food program had shown that it was capable of doing that, had done that in, in the industry. And we said, you know, it's one thing to not know what to do in a situation of how to end sexual harassment and assault. It's another thing to have a proven means of change at hand and not to take it. And of course, combined with the Me Too movement, this was a very, this was a big groundswell of support that we got from hundreds of thousands of consumers across the country, 117,000 people signing on to the Wendy's boycott petition. And when Wendy's responded to farm workers who were fasting, saying that they were exploiting the Me Too movement for their own advantage, Alyssa Milano went out on Twitter to call them out and say, hey, Wendy's, you know, these are farm workers who have been at the forefront well before the Me Too movement 
of working against and ending sexual assault and harassment in the field. And this is unconscionable. Millions of people across the country through magazines like People and magazines like Elle and social media heard about this. It brought a lot of pressure on Wendy. So at their annual meeting, they said, well, we're going to return some of our purchasing from Mexico, but not to the fair food program. We're going to bring it to greenhouses in the U.S. and Canada, which are inherently better. Oh, really? From their air-conditioned offices in New York and Columbus, Ohio, they know conditions are inherently better? Not so. Plenty of documented um, uh, evidence about conditions being poor in the greenhouse industry, whether in Canada or the U.S. So the boycott continues, and students have taken a page out of history and are running Boot the Bell campaigns, where excuse me, Boot the Brave campaigns, where they are terminating their university contracts with Wendy's and saying that they're not going to be complicit in Wendy's failure to put human rights on the menu. And so right now, March 2nd through the 14th, there's a big tour called the Four for Fair Food Tour, where the Coalition of Immokalee Workers is visiting UNC Chapel Hill, OSU, University of Michigan, and University of Florida in Gainesville. All of those campuses have active Boot the Braids campaigns, and we're really going to bring a lot of pressure on university administrations to cut ties with Wendy's and pressure on Wendy's itself to do the right thing and join the Fair Food Program. So part of what the coalition did was help people like you and like me understand that we had a vital role to play in this social movement to change conditions. But that we didn't need to be the experts in their experience. We could be the experts in our domain, in our institutional knowledge, in the culture and language with which we speak, whether it's speak language or whether it's student language. And by doing that and bringing that into the movement together and, and lining that up in a worker-led movement, we could have tremendous effect. So to summarize it, I'd say workers are the lead leaders of the movement, and the rest of us are leaders in the movement, and both are really important. Other questions that you might have, or, or thoughts, or topics, feel free. Jump in. I was really surprised at just the sheer number of companies, and like not just like random, like accessible like mom-and-pop stores kind of thing, but like huge like mainstream grocery chains um, have agreed. Exactly. Yeah. And and what's interesting about that is that it didn't just happen. I mean there was one corporation that CIW students approached mm -hmm. that came quickly and that was Compass Group USA, which is based in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. It's the largest food service provider it, owns Bon Appetit and Chartwells and others. When students in the CIW came to them after the Fair Food Program was getting underway, one of their executives, who by the way happened to be a Presbyterian and had been watching Presbyterian listservs around Fair Food for a number of years, took her executive team down to Immokalee to meet with CIW, and very quickly they came to an agreement and became a core supporter of the Fair Food Program. 
But that wasn't the case with Aramark. We had to open yeah. a campaign with them. That wasn't the case with McDonald's. It's certainly not the case with Wendy's. And that's why consumers are so incredibly important. These corporations don't have to pay attention to farm workers, right? What they care about is their brand. And you and I as consumers can say, hey, if you want us to purchase your product, then become truly accountable mm -hmm. and join the Fair Food Program. And so that's how these corporations came. Most of these corporations, we opened campaigns with them, and they were pretty hard-hitting campaigns. Hunger strikes, actions, investors filing shareholder actions, lots of op-eds, public media storms, um, lots of creative actions involving thousands of people. So, you know, 2,000 people marched in New York City last March against Wendy's and for Wendy's to join the Fair Food Program. But the really critical piece in this is not just who we went up against, mm -hmm. but how those programs made the change to become partners with. Mm -hmm. What consumers did was get farm workers to the table and get corporate executives to the table with a degree of commitment and seriousness necessary to create those legally binding agreements and make them happen. And as soon as that did, then consumers rewarded those, those companies that we were boycotting or campaigning against and let them know that we would support them and in the fair food program. And that's really, really important. So right now we're up against Wendy's and we need to do the same thing. We've got a long track record of converting these corporations as well because the fair food program is truly a win, 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 win solution. It's a win for workers in terms of advancing human rights. It's a win for growers in that they market their products as truly sustainable. It's a win for corporations who have the best risk prevention mechanisms in place because it's not a PR response to a human rights crisis. It actually cleans up the abuses in their supply chain. And that's something that a lot of corporations figure out, you know, they're struggling. How do we do this genuinely? And so it's a win for them. And then of course for you and for me as consumers, it's a win for us. We know we're not being made complicit in the exploitation of farm workers when we're purchasing. We know that we can find out information about what corporations are participating and what growers are participating. So it's a system that works for everybody. And as companies like uh, you know, McDonald's or Taco Bell or Aramark came to understand that there were real benefits for them in this, and as they've remained in the program, they've seen that benefit. They're, they're participating in a, a really wonderful way in this program. And Wendy's can certainly do the same. But we still need to convince them. So for that, I sure hope you will consider boycotting Wendy's. Mm -hmm. And you can go to boycott-wendy's.org for more boycott information and information on the Four for Fair Food Tour. If any of you are interested in hopping on the bus, there's going to be a bus from Georgia going down to the Gainesville stop on the tour. The Gainesville stop is March the 14th, and Professor Pippin has some information for those of you who may be interested in that.
Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippen, your host. You can reach me at tinapippen.org on the website. My address is tpippen, P-I-P-P-I-N, at agnescott, A-G-N-E-S-S-C-O-T-T dot E-D-U. I want to thank my audio engineers for today, Reagan Turner, along with China Wilson and Megan Simmons. Music today is by Lance Eric Hagen, the opening music by Lance Eric Hagen, and Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Additional music is provided by Paul Myrie of the Wabash Center for Teaching Theology and Religious Studies. Today you've heard Dream of Winter Sans Guitar in 2019. You can find his music on Reverb Nation. Thank you.